Love Talk Radio. up our two-part look at the Hannibal Lester movies minus Manhunter. Um, first uh, two movies we did last week, we looked at Silence of the Lambs, and we looked at Hannibal. We had Robert Winfrey on and Benjamin J. Cologne, who provided us with some stellar artwork uh, to talk about both of those movies and their thoughts on Mr. Lecter. So we are back to do it again. Benjamin will be along shortly. Uh, Robert Winfrey is waiting in the wings to basically take over my job tonight because I just can't. <laughs> uh, before we get to all that, I only bring up my co-host. Uh, he is Sean. You are not Mr. Sean Comer. How you doing, sir? Hi, everybody. Mark stole my tagline. How the hell in four <laughs> years of doing this have we not done the Halloween series, by the way? Um, I'm a scaredy cat. That was going to be my guess. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, uh, I called from dusk till dawn for next year. Uh, but if, it, but if you say, God damn it, stop running away from slasher films, which is another reason why I don't choose them is I don't particularly want to watch. Slasher oh, films. No, 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 no. Uh, allow me to make something perfectly clear here. I have no problem with from dusk till dawn, despite the fact that it's one excellent movie um, that sums up everything that makes me worship the ground that Robert Rodriguez walks on. And two movies that just... I, I, I lay awake some nights struggling to understand why they exist. Or what's more importantly, I, I, I struggle to understand why they exist, and yet the Netflix series From Dusk Till Dawn actually is okay. I don't <laughs> have nearly the love for it that I do um, that, I, that I do the movie, obviously, the first one, but actually somehow all right. It, it's one of those that kind of breaks that curse of... Uh, Terrible TV shows that are spun that are spun off from good movies. Uh, I'm going to run on this show where, like, we have we have one great movie that starts off a franchise that goes directly into the toilet, but then a television television series comes out of it that's actually damn good. It's not like a repeating pattern, right? Right. But you see, but when it comes to Halloween, the thing about it is, 
Um, the thing you have to be frightened of is not the actual movies themselves, although uh, by all means, the, the first movie into a slightly, like the very first one, the, John, the first John Carpenter one, and to a slightly lesser extent, the second one, really wrote the book and set the bar for slasher movie quality for everything that would t- that would come after them, particularly anything that was shot on just a clarinet reeds and dental floss budget. But and, and well and I'll even I'll even go along with what has become an increasingly popular movie over the years. Halloween three is once you really kind of get past the fact that it's not a, that it's not a Michael Myers centered movie, it's actually not half bad. It's actually okay. Um, it's everything after that that just gets so progressively bad that whole swaths of continuity were just completely nuked from canon. Uh, with Halloween H2O. Uh, we, we can explain that sometime off, sometime off the air, but what I would worry about would be that you would start getting, that you would start um, in on the movies like uh, The Return of Michael Myers, The Curse of Michael Myers, so on and so forth, and poor Melissa would have to, would have to explain to Lily and Jonas why blood is popping from dad from daddy's ears and he's all of a sudden starts speaking starts speaking an incomprehensible gibberish funny because they that. would because they, because they would render unto unto you a goddamn aneurysm trying to trying to figure out the 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 black satan's asshole of continuity failure that they generate so I don't think I've ever seen any of the original Halloween movies, uh, but I will say this, and I'm looking at the dates now, and so it had to have been Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers, which came out in 1995. I'm, I know I saw that one. I, got, I know I was dragged to the movies to oh, go see this. Oh, poor son of a bitch. And the Curse of Michael Myers it, is so bad, it slipped into public domain. Right? Now, you know what? Here, here I, 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 think I, I think I have a good way to explain this, and it goes back to something that I remember being said in the domain of professional wrestling once. Um, I remember I remember someone, say, someone saying something to the effect of, oh, God, I'm scared to death. I'm going to butcher – I'm going to butcher this line because it really is accurate – that um, the the best thing to come out of a certain match from a certain pay per view between The Rock and the and the Undertaker, the only good thing about good thing about it was that the Undertaker versus Giant Gonzalez was no longer the worst match of Mark Calloway's career. Um, that's kind of how I feel about Halloween Resurrection. That that's so many years later that the only good thing to come out of the fact that that movie happened and can't unhappen is the fact that the curse of Michael Myers just might no longer be the worst thing to ever happen to the franchise. So, 
I remember my friends taking me to go see uh, Halloween, and I went just, I think, to get out of the house, um, you know, just to hang out with my friends. And so 1995 had to have been my first year of college, so this makes sense to me. This is, I, I, I remember at this point I was going to see a lot of movies. We were, like, big yeah. into, like, indie stuff and whatever. And I, I could have sworn um, Jamie Lee Curtis was in this, but she's not. In any case... Uh, this was one of the worst movies I've seen, and this is not even an issue about it being a slasher or a horror movie. I mean, this isn't even competently shot. There were no. there were massive editing gaps in this thing to the point where I was laughing out loud in the theater. Like we all were, you know, we were all kind of film snobs, and we were just, we were laughing at the incompetence of this film from a, from just a craft standpoint. Now, no, just, just so we're clear, we're talking about the Curse of Michael Myers, not the original, right? Okay, okay, good. Curse of Michael Myers. Hmm. Um, yep, came out uh, September 29th, 1995, and uh, so that there's no way, there's no other way, there's no way I would have seen any of these other films um, in the theater. Well, at the things of- things do get re-released, yeah. Mark. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I mean, I. I Likely did not see any of these in re-release. Okay. Um, um, let me go ahead and bring uh, Robert on since he's already kind of jumped in there. Uh, Robert Winfrey, <laughs> welcome to welcome back to the show. Thank you for sort of uh, taking the lion's share of leadership here, as this is uh, the Hannibal Lecter stuff is, is really your bag. Um, happy to help out, even though again, uh, I have to apologize profoundly and repeatedly for being the one who got Hannibal Rising onto this ep- onto this series. Because, yeah. Mark, now I, that you've seen it, I imagine that you are, like, adding the Trolls movie to our review schedule for next year. <laughs> so let me say two things. One, to, to, the, to the thing about Halloween, um, if, there's a, that's a lot of movies um, to try to squeeze into uh, a month if we're still going to do From Dusk Till Dawn. And we don't have to decide this right now, but if but I'm always up for a challenge, and if you know, and if the vast majority of people involved in this want to do Halloween instead of From Dusk Till Dawn, I'm open to it. Letting, moving, moving on from that and turning the page. So about Hannibal Rising, you know, look, one thing that makes Damn You Hollywood kind of a fun show is um, the, the occasional sort of poking in each other's eyes. Uh, Robert and I, you know, are free to, you know, like a movie or dislike a movie and make our points and sort of live and let live. And, it, you know, and it isn't like, oh, you didn't like this and, and, and negative feelings come out of it. But I'll tell you what, and, and not only that, but like just because Robert likes something or doesn't like something doesn't mean I'm immediately going to join in. And a lot of times we disagree. I mean, Age of Extinction, that's our, like, Spock example of we went fucking head to head on that. And neither one of us gave it to the point where, like, two years later, we're still arguing about it. Um, and that's fine. That's fun. And, and more often than not, I don't always agree with, with Winfrey um, in terms of just what entertains me versus what entertains him. But, and he said Hannibal Rising sucked as a movie. And I thought, oh, this is just Winfrey being Winfrey. It's not going to be that bad. (laughs) (laughs) I've never agreed with you more. (laughs) We were actually going to get a little mad that you said let's include it. Because we could have skipped this 
entirely and not lost a thing. Oh, man. <laughs> Two hours of my life I want back, and I took a break to do a metal podcast. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. Again, had you, I realized let, 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 the totality of what you were asking me when you asked that question, I would not have said – I would not have suggested it. it it's God, barely considered canon. Let us tell you something mean, Gene. If you <laughs> had tried to weasel out of it, I would not have goddamn let you. And let me take you back a little bit and tell you why. I let you off easy with the Highlander movie that I went along with you skipping. Because, son, as bad, as fucking babbling incomprehensible as as Highlander 2 The Quickening was... I didn't insist you sit through Highlander the Source. I didn't yeah. make I didn't make you endure the fucking made-for-sci-fi movie that just took everything wonderful about that franchise behind the barn and did do it what sci-fi does to just about every goddamn thing that isn't an original series. So, no. You got off light on that one. All the rest <laughs> of us have seen all four of the Hannibal of the Hannibal Lecter movies. You, sir, are we're sitting your punk bitch ass down and watching <laughs> the bad one. You were watching the nasty duty that this doggy left on the middle of the floor. Ugh. It was like watching a. It was like watching a like a test pattern for two hours. Only a test pattern is colorful. Oh, <laughs> uh, we'll get to that. Uh, you should bring on Ben. He's been quietly waiting to join in on our mockery of Hannibal Rising. Thank, thank you, host of Long Road to Ruin, Robert Winfrey. Benjamin, we uh, we welcome you back to the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you again. Thank you again for all your uh, lovely artwork. Um. Hannibal Rising sucks, buddy. I, I don't. I don't know what to do about it. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> uh, sorry, I'm late. By the way, I literally like walked in the door like five minutes before the show started. Um, but uh, right. we, uh, I moved up. The, I moved up the time because I knew I wasn't going to go run tonight, and and you didn't know that, so it's all right. It's perfectly good. We're all good here, folks. We're all friends. All lovely. All right, let's get into this. Oh, one thing I wanted to add, actually related to the topic, not not talking about Halloween again. Um, I actually did see these movies uh, before we did this podcast. I just forgot about them. Like I knew I saw Silence of the Lambs, and I've actually seen it more than once. But I'm or at least some of Hannibal at one point, and I know I saw Red Dragon. I may have actually seen it in the movies uh, because as soon as it started, and I and I saw what was happening, I'm like, oh, I remember all of. And you know, and there were some things I had forgotten about, but yeah, I actually knew more about this series than I than I, than I thought. It's just been you know x amount of years, and I I've, I've just forgotten about it. But um, I actually really enjoyed watching Red Dragon again. We've already discussed Hannibal Rising. We'll get to that in a little bit. So I'm going to turn it over to Rob now. Rob, this is kind of your show here. Um, before but before we do that, Sean, you want to give some notes on Red Dragon? You know. 
there actually really aren't all that many production notes. Uh, there's, there just aren't any real funny stories or anything or anything to it, except that, you know, it's last. If you recall last week, I referred to Hannibal as being like this franchise's equivalent to the 2015-2016 uh, Golden State Warriors. A movie where you look on paper at all the pieces laid out on paper and think, how could this possibly not go all the way and be another unabashed winner? And yet, somehow, um, this one is actually quite the opposite. This one, you have one big colossal problem with this movie that's right at the center of it. That, you know, it's one of the axles of the whole, of the whole thing that's expected to keep the wheels on the road and in alignment. Um, you know, we, you know, and such fine wheels they are, such as Ray Fiennes, Anthony Hopkins, Harvey Keitel, and uh, honestly, one of my all-time favorite actors who's been in a shit ton of movies that I could watch again and again on end without ever tiring of any of them, Edward fucking Norton. But the real amazing thing is, we're talking about a movie that's helmed by Brett fucking Ratner. Mm. Uh, yeah, um, that Brett Ratner. I believe we discussed him at length when we talked about the original X-Men trilogy. Um, but as far as there really being a story to this, all you really have to know about it is the fact that this is their second time through bringing this book to the screen. The other one was Michael Mann's Manhunter, which was made in the 80s and featured William Peterson in the role of FBI Special Agent Will, Will Graham and the great Brian Cox as, as the original Hannibal Lecter. So, there you go. I probably just won you a cheap-ass $2 well shot at some barroom trivia night by telling you who was really the first actor uh, to play cinema's most famous cannibal. Uh, it was, again, it came out in the 80s. Uh, if I, I guess if you want to know a little bit more about it and you feel like contributing to the bullshit career of an absolute bag of festering dicks. Uh, the Nostalgia Critic did an old versus new take on it a few years ago where he compared it to Red Dragon. And I, I think the fucking crooked little chucklehead actually had the nerve to say that some aspects of Manhunter were better. Um, I, if you're new to the show, I don't like Doug or a lot of people from Channel Awesome. Uh, but in addition, uh, you know, Goofy as a pet coon, Dino De Laurentiis, wasn't really all that fond of it either, So, which is why he was totally cool with doing a new version of it. It's just called Red Dragon, not called fucking Manhunter this time. Um, and about the only funny thing is if you ever... Uh, if you ever watch the original DVD release and perhaps 
chance to put on the commentary track, you might have heard. I, I think it. I think it was uh, Dingleberry director man himself actually pointing out that when production of the movie was first greenlit, uh, Dino apparently had no idea uh, who Ratner was. He had never seen Rush Hour. I don't think that's entirely a bad thing for the record. Not that it's terrible. I just think there are better Jackie Chan movies one could enjoy. Um, But otherwise, I mean, otherwise, and we'll get into my reasons why, but Honestly, I was excited as hell when I saw it was hitting theaters because of the then trilogy of Lecter stories. Red Dragon was far and away my favorite. Uh, Again, I was delighted to see Anthony Hopkins back as Hannibal. Loved Edward Norton. I wasn't quite as familiar with Ray Fiennes or Harvey Keitel at the time, but they were predictably outstanding. Oh, it also features... uh, the late Philip Seymour Hoffman playing uh, douchebag, lowlife, and eventually set merrily ablaze tabloid reporter Freddie Lowndes um, in what was, you know, your, your typical fairly entertaining Philip Seymour Hoffman supporting turn. But otherwise, no, there there's really no wacky what might have been casting or anything. Or anything, no disputes about the story, about the story or directorial direction. Somehow, despite you know Brett Ratner. Uh, so, so, yeah. I mean, onward, Robert Ben. You got anything? I'll go ahead and throw a plot synopsis down here for you guys, and then we can get into dissecting this thing for a variety of reasons. Uh, the opening bit for Red Dragon actually features Will Graham capturing Hannibal Lecter. Uh, it's basically adapted correctly from the book. And you're gonna hear that perfectly. You're gonna hear that phrase frequently throughout this uh, episode when it comes to Red Dragon, in no small part because when they made this version of Red Dragon, they actually got Ted Talley back to adapt it. And if you wanted. I said it about Hannibal last week. Hannibal as a film is a poor adaptation of the source material. You know, for all of its other faults, fundamentally that's one of its major problems. Red Dragon, for all of its for all of the problems it has in places, and it has a few, is adapted correctly because they got someone who knew what they were doing when they did it. Uh, for those of you who don't remember, Ted Tolley also adapted Silence of the Lambs from novel into screenplay format. So they got the right guy to do it. Uh, feature, again, features the capture, capture of Lecter by Will Graham. Flash forward a few years, Will Graham is retired, semi-retired from the FBI because his wife, who, you know, Sean has a category of female characters that he refers to on occasion because they are stereotypically mm-hmm. angry, unsupportive, whiny, things of that nature. Uh, I believe chief among those are Skylar White and whatever Betty, her name is. Yes, the, the, the namesake, the traveling Betty Draper, shut the fuck up, all-stars. There we Yeah, Betty Draper, that's the other one. Yep. And unfortunately, 
Yeah. Uh, and in the first instance in this case, in this week of the show did it better, Mary Louise Parker <laughs> plays his wife and very much falls into that category. She is a much more interesting character in the show. For those of you who have which not is, yet keyed into that fact. Which is, which, is a shame because a shame. I re- which is a shame because I really like Mary Louise Parker. <laughs> which is also to say in the show she's a character. <laughs> Very true. Fair. That's fair. Uh, Jack Crawford, in this case, played by Harvey Keitel, comes down to Will's location because he needs help capturing a family annihilator that the press has dubbed the Tooth Fairy because he bites his victims. The Tooth Fairy in this instance is Francis Dollarhide. And with a name like that, I mean, this poor kid had no chance. No, 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 no. I mean, you look at some of the names that he, that Thomas Harris came up with for his serial killers. I mean, Jamie Gum. You know that 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 poor kid's getting harassed no matter how stable his home life is. <laughs> and Francis Dollarhide is like, really? <laughs> of course, you know Dollarhide's existence was slightly more tortured than Gums in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But read the book for future for further details on those two characters. Uh, will is kind of coaxed back into, you know, somewhat against his will into assisting and consulting on this case. He hits a profiling roadblock and goes to see Hannibal Lecter for assistance because Lecter is still a genius. We get some fun interactions between Graham and Lecter. Not nearly as entertaining as the stuff between Lecter and Starling, but still not not half bad, and certainly a vast improvement over Lecter and Starling from Hannibal. Uh, we get a little bit into Ray Fiennes, uh, his, his character. He winds up uh, reaching out to Lecter through, I believe, on uh, this side of date, the movie, if nothing else does. It was personal ads. That's what it was. Yep. In yep. Uh, newspapers. <laughs> and they have a little bit of a correspondence. He's look, he winds up uh, kind of falling for a blind woman at his job. They, they, Dollarhide's a really interesting character, and I like that in this movie they went out of their way to give him character as opposed to, again, Buffalo Bill, who, while terrifying and certainly a big factor in the movie, doesn't get to develop beyond being scary, damaged, serial killer monster. Well, there's the fact Francis, unlike uh, Jamie Gum, actually has some people that he wants to, uh, to shield from, from this hidden aspect of his life. Uh, Just specifically because he doesn't want to see them caught up in it and hurt. Uh, yeah, he winds up to, after a very unflattering piece is published by uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character of Freddie Lowndes. He's kidnapped and uh, yeah, he doesn't end well. Let me just no. Uh, his lips are torn off violently. He is glued to a wheelchair, lit on fire, and wheeled down a, into a parking lot. Somewhat ironically, he dies easier in this in the movie than he does in the book. He persists for just long enough to taunt Will Graham in the novel. Uh, Graham is finally able to kind of make the necessary connections to catch him. He fakes his own death. 
He comes after Graham in his home. Graham gets a much happier ending in the movie than he does in the book. Because, yeah, no. Uh, for those of you who don't know, in the book, during mm. Dollarhide's final assault on his family in their home, in the movie, it's relatively straightforward. He and Will get into it. Uh, his wife comes up and winds up shooting him. Will shoots him. Death, dead monster. Will still gets a few more scars. Yeah. In the novel, his face is specifically referenced as looking like something that Picasso would paint after he is after that attack. His <laughs> wife leaves him, and he becomes an alcoholic living on his boat. No. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm very I, sad that we will never get to see the continuation of his story beyond that point in the series because of where it ends. But uh, yeah, he, Will Graham is a much happier person in, in all screen adaptations than he is in the book by the time things end up for that poor guy. I will right, say Robert, I, I, I will say this between the two. Um, I get that Freddie Lyons is obviously supposed to be detestable in both the original the original book and the movie. Um, well, in the book, in the movie, and in the TV and in the TV show, obviously, where she's a gender she's gender swipped gender swipped. Uh, me and <laughs> I vomit language pretty. Um, gender swapped uh, to be a woman. Uh, however, being a former reporter myself, I'll just uh, toss this out there. And anybody out there who also happens to be a former journalist, feel free to disagree with me if you want. Uh, I was much more okay with the with the kind of repulsive individual Lowndes was in the movie and the book than in the show. Because in the show, she was every every obnoxious prima donna wannabe rock star reporter that I've ever I've ever encountered who really thought they were being that journalism was about being this crusading renegade renegade badass who was always who was always working for the great for the greater good when really knowing a little bit of what I do, both in the perspective of being a child of law enforcement and having worked for a newspaper, I realized, no, you're actually just being an absolute colossal pain in the ass. And after some of the stunts you've pulled, no law enforcement professional worth their badge would have pissed on you if you were on fire if you had kept lurking around their crime scenes. And in fact, yes, you probably would have been would have been detained by absolutely any measure pop measure possible for jeopardizing and obstructing investigations and just otherwise kind of fucking up everybody else's universe. So that's um, that's just that, that's just me though. So. Robert, I wanted to throw this out there really quick, and then I'm, and then I'm going to let you leave the discussion, because I, I, I have a question that follows it. Um, my one big takeaway from Red Dragon, not having read the book, not being you know, a big fan of the franchise, just sort of enjoying the movie you know, independently as it stood in front of me, um, was that as much as I, I really was entertained by it, and I, I don't find a tremendous amount of fault with it necessarily, it's competently made and acted, um, my one big takeaway was that 
there, there's a long mystery and, uh, you know, to get from the beginning to end, which I know kind of needs to be there. Uh, and it's, and the big thing, the big aha is how does he find his victims? How does he know them so well? This is the thing that, that, that's the monkey on the back through this whole thing. And when it finally happens, everything sort of clicks and the movie shifts into the third act. Um, and I don't know if it was at the cost of, or that's just the way it is even in the book and, and what I'm about to ask for doesn't really exist. But what I found myself really wanting from the movie that I didn't get and I wish there had been more of was, um, you guys have now said his name like a dozen times and I still don't remember it. So <laughs> um, Hannibal Lecter and uh, what's his face? The, the, um, Francis Ed Norton. Ed Norton. Um, Will Graham. More, thank you. More of their relationship. Um, he just sort of walks in on the party and and it all sort of comes together in that first five minutes of the movie. And that's fine. From, from a cinematic point of view, I'm not, I'm not saying it's bad. What I'm saying is I wish that had come later, just a little bit later, maybe 20 to 30 minutes in, and there had been more leading up to it. Um, I found what little of their relationship I was able to see in that moment and then later on throughout the movie to be much more interesting than I think the central mystery. Not saying that it was bad or not interesting, I just preferred that. So my question to you is, does it exist in the book? Not a whole lot more. I seem to recall that in terms of adaptation, this is relatively straightforward in the number of times they actually interact in the book. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I now, Mark, have to say again, go watch the show because it's all about Will and Hannibal interacting and does a tremendous job of it. But there might have been one more bit of interaction, but generally I seem to recall that's all they interacted. It might have taken a bit longer to get to it because Graham, uh, in the book, uh, it's been a while since I've read it, so I apologize if I'm wrong, but at least the other thing about that was in the novel, they got a little bit more into his trauma about what had happened between him and Lecter, and with the novel, you can explore those things more so than you can in film in some ways. And I do agree. I wanted a little bit more of Anthony Hopkins and Edward Norton interacting. Well, now I have a follow-up question, and then I really will shut up and let you take over. Um, Hang on. In the show, do they, do they get into more of their pre-discovery that he's Hannibal the Cannibal, or is it all oh, post-Hannibal? Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. The whole first season is prior uh, to them realizing what Hannibal is. And add to my watch list. Okay, go. Yeah, the, uh, for the record, the <laughs> series, uh, season three, ends with, functionally speaking, the end of Red Dragon. Everything they mm-hmm. the first two and a half seasons are all prior to the events of Red Dragon. Just for the record. That's all. Sold. Oh, it's, it's all awesome. Right. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Okay, uh, Benjamin, I know you had some words you wanted to throw at Mr. Brett Ratner for this movie, so why don't you go ahead and get us started here? Okay. <laughs> uh, crack my knuckles a little bit here. Uh, ooh, ooh. I don't know if we're going to get quite to that point. We may get close. I have words. I have many words. I'm writing a down. 
I always imagine you doing the Vanderlei Silva wrist roll thing right before you get into uh, one of your rants. Hang on, I hang on. I have a bag of popcorn here somewhere. <laughs> so do I. Um, and go. I'm gonna I'm gonna lead up to this first of all by saying like just a really quick amusing anecdote. Just that um, when I was watching, this is the first time I've watched Red Dragon in a, in a couple of years, and. Um, the guy who plays uh, Ralph Mandy, like I, I actually rec- I, I, I felt like I recognized him from somewhere, and I couldn't figure out where. And I kept saying to myself before I recognized him, I know that I know him before because I know he's played the asshole in something else. And it's Frank Welly from Luke Cage who plays uh, Scarf. And incidentally, <laughs> yeah, and incidentally is oh, also. Holy shit. Yeah, and incidentally is also, you know, which I don't know if how many people know this also, but we, you know, I found this out, you know, uh, from a friend of mine. Who also, he also played Brett in Pulp Fiction. Uh, he's the what guy. Cool. Yeah, he's the what guy. So, yeah, he, I don't know. It's an interesting thing where, like, everything I'm seeing him late, in lately is, you know, him just playing the asshole and everything. Uh, so that. Just that that was one of the first things that crossed my mind. Um now back to what you guys all came here for. Um <laughs> Yeah, I have where here here's the thing. I actually like this movie. I I do. Um I don't like it better than, you know, I, I actually don't like there's no way I like it anywhere close to, you know, Silence of the Lambs. And I actually like Hannibal a little bit better for a couple of different reasons. Um as I said it last week, um, the reasons for why this movie is good have, in my opinion, you guys are free to dis- feel free to disagree with me on this, but in my opinion, have absolutely nothing to do with Brett Ratner, and I'll explain <laughs> why. First, this you got you know you got Ted Talley back to write write the screenplay, which was a great. Get, which means this is somebody who has dealt with you know some of these main characters before, and more importantly, actually un, you know it has experience adapting Thomas Harris, um, which if you've read the the original uh, novel of uh, Red Dragon, um, it's not quite as you know as unfortunate, like a, 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 you know, police procedural type of book as, as Silence of the Lambs unfortunately is, and the movie kind of elevated it past. Um, but it has more of that. There's a, there's, there's a lot more procedure than, uh, than character stuff, except maybe where uh, Francis Dalhart is concerned. That's kind of how I looked at it. It, it. There's a lot of, uh, you know, nuts and bolts of, you know, how and, uh, you know, how and where as opposed to who and what and why. Um, the cast in Red Dragon is fantastic and uh, along with Ted Talley's group kind of elevates elevates it past that. You know, everybody everybody's great. Uh, Edward Norton is outstanding. Um, I agree with Sean. I like Edward Norton and damn near everything he's in. Um, uh Harvey Keitel does a good turn as uh, Jack Crawford, which, you know, in the movies, that's a, kind of a thankless role. Uh, and 
I don't know if he tops Sky Glenn in the original, but he's you know kind of a worthy replacement until Lawrence Fishburne came came along and crushed them both. Uh, <laughs> because he really does. Um, <laughs> so you got you know you got a great cast, you got a great uh, you got a great writer. Everybody's you know doing their thing. Um, anybody that knows anything about Edward Norton knows that you know he's not the you know he's not the easiest actor to work with um no. and and I have and I have a distinct yeah you know uh <laughs> that you know that relationship that that was headed for a relationship between him and Josh Whedon and that was never going to work no, um, no 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 but anyway but I I digress um I I kind of firmly believe that between that and, and Anthony Hopkins being able to do this part in his sleep, there wasn't much directing of actors in this movie. And, you know, similar, like Ray Fiennes is another guy that, you know, is good at just waking up in the morning. So I think a lot of the the, the, the best chess pieces were kind of already in place, uh, you know, and all Ratner had to do was point the camera and pretend he was Jonathan Demi. Uh, more on that in just a second. <laughs> I'm building you know, up to this may, may I make a May I make a short comparison real quick and then and then just let's get right back to it? Sure thing. I think, I think, again, we're fond of wrestling comparisons on this show. If I had to liken it to anything, it's more like how before you give Vince Russo too much credit for being the architect of WWE's Attitude Era. You have to look at the fact that he had Vince McMahon as a filter and his biggest principal assets talent-wise that he had to work with were the likes of, depending on, on the year, Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart, Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Rock, and The Undertaker, and Triple H just for funsies. Throw Mick Foley just, in there if you want. I, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, throw I, throw Mick Foley in there to liven to liven everything up. And after a while, you know, you gotta wonder if if well, in either case, you know, are we talking about say a sitcom that's that's actually good on its own, that's actually that's actually a good show, or you know? back when it was in its prime, did it just pull good ratings because it was on right after Seinfeld? Pretty apt, apt uh, comparisons to make there. Yeah. I'm with you on that. Um, and, you know, here's where I, you know, where I get into, you know, my biggest problem with this, with this movie. And I've mentioned it before. I mentioned it when we were talking about the crow, when we were talking about the crow, uh, salvation, um, and I'd mentioned, you know, uh, the Amazing Spider-Man movies, and I mentioned The Crow Salvation, and my biggest problems with those were that the direction was completely hollow. Uh, it, I felt it was completely hollow and completely, you know, a derivative of, you know, the people, you know, far better and more talented people that had come before him uh, in each case. Um, that's kind of the Brett Ratner story to me. <laughs> Brett Ratner to me is one of the big yeah, you see where this is going. Brett Ratner to me is one of the biggest hack directors that Hollywood has seen in the last fifteen to twenty years. 
Um, I don't think he has any kind of visual style or directorial identity whatsoever. I can point to just about every major movie that he's done or every major movie that he's profited from, and I can point to one or two directors that he ripped off to do it. Okay, who did he rip off with uh, Rush Hour, just kind of John Woo or just every Hong Kong action director ever? I don't even think it was – well, that, you know – that's more Jackie Chan do, being Jackie Chan than anything else. To me, that was mm-hmm. Rush Hour. To me, was you know, you put you put guys like, and I know you're not the biggest Chris Tucker fan in the world, but you know he's he no. has he has a certain kind of charisma. He had chemistry with Jackie Chan, mm-hmm. and that worked. And you point the camera at those guys, and you re, once again, you really don't have to direct them very much. They just kind of do what they do, and it works. And all you have to do is make sure that the camera is turned on. You have to be that competent. Okay, he's competent enough to turn the camera on in front of these two guys. There was that. <laughs> Aside from that, it was, you know, it was a lot of what, you know, Walter Hill did in like 48 Hours and, and what Tony Scott did in a lot of his mm, best. Good point. In, you know, Beverly Hills Cop 2 and, you know, Last Boy Scout, stuff like that. Um, Lethal Weapon. You know, Lethal Weapon, yeah. yeah. With um, uh, Richard, Richard Donner, Donner Lethal, Lethal Weapon, that's another good example. It's uh, X Men: The Last Stand. Do we really need to, you know, go into how what a really shitty carbon copy of oh, Bryan Singer he was trying to be in that movie? Like, do I need to go into too much of that? Can we are, no. we, are we on the same page with that? Oh uh, yeah, what kind? It kind of makes you wonder what would have happened if he had been um, trying to ape Richard Donner in Superman Returns. Well, it was funny because Brian Singer did the same thing anyway, but that's a whole other story. Um, Brian that's Singer, we, at least we know Brian Singer is capable of having a, a unique directorial identity. He just didn't display any of it when he did Superman Returns. Brett Ratner wouldn't have been any better, trust me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Tower Heist, you know, uh, I, I, you know, people on IMDb call, call that an Ocean's ripoff, you know. I don't know. Well, you kind of have to try to really figure out what is what it is about Steven Soderbergh that works to be able to rip it off. But... Wow, an, an, Ocean's, an Ocean's Eleven ripoff. So he was actually ripping off a remake of a Rat, of a rat Pack movie. Yeah. God yeah. damn. As a and man who was forced to watch Tower Heist with needles in my arms. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's painful. I was God donating damn, plasma it, it, at the it, time. That's it, the only it, way I would ever watch a Ben Stiller movie. If, if, you were to, if you were to get any more watered down or derivative than ripping off a remake, I honestly think you would probably fall somewhere but somewhere between bottled water and American beer. Can I, Ben, can I just say one thing? I, I was waiting for you to, to get to the end of this, but I want I to just jump in right now, get it off my chest, and you can resume at will. Sure. Um, sure. Look, in defense of Brett Ratner, which I, I, I say and I jump underneath my desk, he is a cog in the Hollywood machine, and his job and really what a lot of what he's known for, and he's not the only one, but certainly what he in particular is known for, is studios with, the, with, with a lot of franchise movies 
have an agenda and they want a director who will follow the agenda. They will click all the boxes. They will um, they will follow orders with good soldiers. And look, you know, style is for their their opinion. A lot of times is style is for indie movies. Franchises are to make money, and we want somebody who is going to do what we want. We being the executives, because. We know what's best. Now, we all we can sit here forever and talk about how executives are the head of the ranch. That's not what I want to get into. My point is you can fault the man for not being an artist and for or you know, for being a shitty director in terms of not having a style, but he's also exactly what executives want for their franchise movies, and he does do that well. He he follows orders like a good soldier. He makes the movies they think they want and they think we want. So I, I don't come to not give the guy too much of a hard time. That's fine. And I understand that. And I have come to continue to give him a hard time for exactly that. Um, <laughs> I, I understand where you're coming from. I understand, you know, what, what the Hollywood machine is and what they require and what people are willing to uh, execute what they require. And that's And that is what it is. Uh, doesn't make him suck any less. Um, and here, here's the problem. Like, you know, uh, some of the other stuff, like, you know, I actually, you know, I enjoyed for the most part the three Rush Hour movies. They, you know, they're they're good fun. Uh, you know, like I said, the cast elevates, you know, two main leads uh, elevate them, that sort of thing. Um, that is a little bit less egregious for me than when somebody else basically is aping the style of my favorite movie and I can't unsee uh, <laughs> how how you try to, you know, trying to copy certain things and clearly not understanding what worked about them. Um, you know, I can ignore, uh, you know, I can ignore a crappy, you know, uh, style ripoff of, you know, an action comedy that I'm less emotionally invested in. Um, I have, you know, I have sat through Silence of the Lambs enough to, you know, memorize and analyze, you know, facial expressions. So you're not getting that past me when you try to, you know, when you try to do it in another movie to, to a much lesser degree and with a much, you know, lower level of skill. That's kind of something I can't unsee and I haven't been able to unsee and I've never been able to unsee anytime I watch Red Dragon. Uh, I watch it for the acting. I watch it for the performances. I watch it for, you know, Anthony Hopkins seems to be having a pretty good time. That's what I get out of that movie. Directorially, visually, uh, it's kind of, in some ways it's almost intolerable for me personally. <laughs> so that's just that's just me. I you know, Brett Ratner. I got you know I really just have no respect for him as an artist. Uh, he you know he'll make him he'll, he'll make your movie money, um, but you know. I, I, I can't unsee what he tried and kind of failed to do with the, uh, you know, with Red Dragon. Look, that's all fair. You know, that that's all, that's all fair. And I respect that opinion. I just, it needed to be said that he isn't just kind of walking on the set, you know, and, and he's plumb retarded and doesn't, and doesn't know what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's doing what the bosses want. Well, we can disagree about the retarded part. 
<laughs> See, wait, wait, wait a second, though. Wait, wait, because here's the problem with that. You're not comparing apples to apples here, though. It's one thing to hand him an action pop culture franchise, a licensed property that, that you know, it, it is what it is. It's meant to make money off of name recognition, off of just simply the fact that it's a, that it's a part of the zeitgeist. It's one thing to do that. That's not to diminish the quality of the first two X-Men films or how ambitiously Brian Singer made them. Not at all. But when it comes to Red Dragon, you're talking about handing over the legacy of something that's regarded as a work of art, what most would call a masterpiece of suspense cinema. Is it also an adaptation? Yes. It is. However, he's going to be following up one of the greatest directors to ever stand behind a camera in Jonathan Demme. And he's going to be taking over a movie that is, that is a textbook in building tension and maintaining tension, tension and establishing unforgettable characters and doing it subtly and making an icon out of a character that I think we said last week, if you tally it up in Silence of the Lambs, has about 15 minutes of screen time. And taking what is, although I disagreed with it, Mark, last week, is an unconventional kind of structure and approach to, and approach to story, and making it work seamlessly to the point that you never even begin to question it. And then you take that and you hand that over to somebody who's as unambitious and as lazy as Ratner is, and all he can think of to do is instead of having anything significant and of his own quality to bring to it, is, as Ben put it, yeah, just do the laziest impression possible of the guy who, of the guy who came before of the guy who came before you. You know what? It's like taking, oh, what? I, I, I fear that I'm going to get this wrong. Uh, Shakespeare's famous unfinished play, I believe, was Love's Labor's Lost. I think was it was. that Was was that the one that was unfinished? I couldn't then, tell yeah, you off the top of my head, yeah, but let's go yeah. with that for the sake of the analogy. Yeah, and, yeah, and then you hand that over to some ass-scratching, booger-eating middle school kid who somehow can't couldn't spot it in the C and the T. It's a matter of what you're handing over to somebody and looking at who you're entrusting what to. You know, you're not, well, like I said, you're also not going to put aforementioned dumb shit teenager behind the wheel of a, behind the wheel of a vintage 1960s Rolls Royce either. That's really what they did here, and I gotta think that given his resume, the only thing that in the back of those executives' minds, the back of Dino De Laurentiis' minds, that possibly justified it was the fact that they looked at everything else that he had to work with and said to themselves, God damn, ain't no way even the, even the chucklehead who made Rush Hour can fuck this up. They had to think. They had to think it was such a sure thing. And also, you throw in uh, Ted Talley. 
who had a track record that in a way kind of in context speaks for itself in terms of Ted Talley adapted Silence of the Lambs. Silence of the Lambs was absolutely brilliant. Five Academy Awards. AFI's 100 Years, 100, 100 Movies nom- nominee. Um, ab- absolutely the role that, jo- that Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins are going to be remembered for for the rest of their lives. It's going to probably come first in the headlines on the unfortunate day when the two pass into the hereafter. You know, and then he declines to make Hannibal because he looks at the story and says, and says, this is morbid, lurid garbage, and I'm not going anywhere near it. And lo and behold, it turns out to pretty much disappoint everybody, including probably the, peop- the people from the original movie who chose not to be involved, not to be involved with it. So they had to figure, okay, at this point, we're safeguarded. We're basically ensured that this can over- can overcome whatever deficiencies he's He's got so yeah. By all means, you want to hand the guy your your action movie or your rip off heist mo- heist movie or some movie where you have to take the Kmart Chris Rock and Jackie fucking Chan and just point a camera at him and say go to the legacy of one of the greatest movies of all movies of all time. No, I, I'm with I'm with Ben. It's it's still baffling, even given his very niche expertise at at okay here's a directing job a monkey could do we're going to give we're going to give it to you because you can do what you're told can so, i have one final rebuttal and and allow me uh, to be the groveling apologist for Brett Ratner <laughs> um here's the only thing i have to say like i don't totally disagree with you i think even um, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to tell a director, look, please don't have a vision. Just do what the last guy did. That worked really well. Just do that for cheap, okay? Please. Um, you can still sort of take those notes, go home, drink a bit, and then come into work and, and still put your think on something and make it good. And, and clearly, Brett Ratner is not that guy. Um, However, and, and here's the, my one only other defense of Brett Ratner. We don't know for sure how much of an original vision he really did have versus how much in the way of notes he got from the studio, which may have literally been, please don't have a vision, just do what the last guy did. <laughs> and him going, okay, okay, boss, whatever you say, and him doing the most effective job he thought he could do with those notes. I'm willing I'm willing to bet uh I'm willing to bet at least one of those notes was just more Lecter because <laughs> true cuz he's he's in the movie more than Lecter is in the book. Lecter is a very minor character in the book. Yeah, and that's my point. You know, with look, look, Silence of the Lambs is a huge hit and it's and it starts off this franchise. So you know that every subsequent movie after that the Hollywood executives are going to get more and more involved and there's going to be more and more notes. And the more I learn about sort of the, the nuts and bolts of movie making and sort of the stories that I hear, the kind of stuff that Sean usually talks about at the top of the show, the more and more I realize how much loss of control a lot of the artists have in making their oh, movies. Yeah. Now, some, some, some can tell the studios to fuck right off. I'll go do something else if you don't want me. And they say, no, 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 please come back. We need you. Hi, um, and that's fine. But in many other cases, 
the studio goes, you know, when they, when, when you have someone who says, you know, I'm going to take my ball and go home because you people won't leave me alone and let me create the film that people want to see. And the studio goes, the door's that way. We'll find, we'll, we'll find, <laughs> we'll find rent a cop version of you for cheap and we'll still make a, you know, zillions of dollars in theory. So, you know, that, that go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah. I, you guys adequately stole my thunder and the majority of what I was going to say, I just needed to get Sorry. this out here and don't, no, don't be, uh, there's a couple of things I want to say that's going to kind of echo that. And I just want to, because I mentioned that I had to bring this up when talking about Brett Ratner uh, very specifically. So if you'll indulge me in a minor story, that's mostly personal. Uh, for those of you who don't know, if you're out there listening, I'm a big fan of mixed martial arts. I review and live blog mostly UFC events, occasionally smaller organizations. And last year, uh, there was an event that I think uh, had a slightly larger impact on how I do stuff like this than I realized at the time. Uh, There was an event, I believe it was a Fight Pass exclusive event, headlined by a fight between Paige Van Zandt and Rose Namajunas. The fight itself is nothing special, generally speaking. Uh, Paige gets her ass handed to her for 23 minutes and then gets choked out. What's astonishing about that fight is the commentary, because thankfully it is not Dogeberg and Grumpy Cat Joe Rogan. It's John Anik and Brian Stan. And Brian Stan, through the course of that fight, does a tremendous job burying Paige Van Zandt's technique without burying her as a fighter. It's a truly magnificent job on commentary of very technically, because he's speaking about her technique, of you know, very technically, very succinctly, very dispassionately, just explaining here's what she's doing wrong, here's what she should be doing different. Oh, and by the way, here's why she should have learned this by now. Mm-hmm. Through the course of this fight up until the finish, and it, it stunned me afterwards to realize what a thorough job he had done of explaining all of her deficiencies without ever making me think that she's either a bad fighter or that I don't want to see her fight again or delving into the emotional whatsoever. And if any of you guys haven't seen that, just watch that fight just for Brian Stan's commentary. Mm -hmm. So So at this point in my critical career, I generally try when talking about an intellectual property, I try to emulate that. I try to be accurate. I try to be technical and I try to, you know, again, bury it where it's necessary without going overboard. And it's a work in progress because frequently I fly off the handle, especially when we, if you listen to Damn You Hollywood, Mark finds other critics' analysis that is designed to kind of provoke me into such a reaction. But I try not to get too angry at the movies. You know, I'll, 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 kind of sec- I'll kind of second that. It, it actually sounds a lot like how early on when we first started doing this podcast, actually, uh, I started off being a very inexperienced broadcaster, and oftentimes, yeah, I'm man enough to admit it, I would kind of ape a combination of uh, Nash from Radio Dead Air and Brad, and Brad Jones um, until I kind of got my head screwed up screwed on straight and realized that 
uh, what really co- that really wasn't coming through was just uh, trying to find the best in these movies and why they, and why they work and what maybe could have been better. Yeah. And my my point there is when it comes to Red Dragon, I because I don't like Brett Ratner, but I didn't want to come in here and just say I don't like Brett Ratner. And I agree completely with what Benjamin was saying. Brett Ratner is a is not a director. He's a stage manager. He kind of just shows up and makes sure nobody lights the place on fire. <laughs> I mean, that, that, actually, is the, that, that may actually be the best way I've ever heard kind of kind of an inept, mediocre director summed up. And Trying to in this, light bulbs. Yeah, and pencils. <laughs> no, he's and in this instance, he, if, uh, hang, hang on, just just add, add, add to what you're saying, and I'll shut up. He's a manager. Yeah. He shows up. He makes sure everyone's working. Yeah. He makes sure. Stay on budget. Yeah, and if you could just come in this Saturday, that'd be great. (laughs) Yeah, essentially him as a director. And there's nothing wrong with that. Oh, there's stuff wrong with it, bud. That's a whole different discussion. You could say he's Lumberg, but on the bright side, at least he's not Michael Scott. I'd rather have Michael Scott, in all fairness. Okay, my point there is (laughs) Brett Ratner will do a decent... When you put him in the right situation, he will do what the studio wants. He, if you put him in a position where he is not required to do anything, the end product can be passable. We talked about Rush Hour. I mean, look, there were enough Jackie Chan movies at the time, and you know, you show him a couple of the buddy cop movies of the era, and you say, I mean, he might not even be a person. He might be a robot wherein you input what you want, it comes up with a reasonable facsimile thereof based on a flawed algorithm. The Ratner Tron 5000. <laughs> Dan, start drawing that. I, I, I want a copy of I want a drawing of the, the Ratner Tron 5000. Well, Saturday's coming up. We'll see. And my point there is that in this case, it was very hard for him to fail. You had a screenplay written by a guy who knew what he was doing, you have Edward Norton, you have Ray Fiennes, you have Anthony Hopkins, you have Philip Seymour Hoffman, you have Harvey Keitel. You have all these pieces that make it exceptionally difficult to fail. It's You're adapting. Proof. This was idiot proof, and the studio, I think, in an effort to, make sure, to ensure that it remained idiot proof, went, What's the blandest, most unvisionary, <laughs> uninspired director we can possibly get? And they found Brett Ratner. They sat him down in front of Silence of the Lambs and said, we want a reasonable facsimile thereof. And he said, okay, pay me. We got an idiot-proof cast and an idiot-proof script. Let's go find an idiot. Yeah, (laughs) pretty much. We must test whether or not these are actually idiot-proof. And And it turns out... Hannibal Rising when they handed their franchise off to an actual idiot. Ugh. Yeah, but that feared much worse. <laughs> There's so much wrong with that. Um, but the, oh, the last thing I want to say about Red Dragon, um, specifically, and this is, I'm not big on compare. Uh, this might sound weird, but I'm not the biggest on comparing and contrasting the show with the movies. 
because it either did it one of them did it better than the other frequently the show in this instance but there's not a whole lot of intricate debate on the subject in this instance the two things one is just kind of a pure anecdote that uh, goes to professional wrestling the other is i want to talk a little bit about ray fines because i did not appreciate at the time when i first saw this movie uh, the physical stature of ray fines in the book Francis Dollarhide is very specifically described as being a massive human in terms mm-hmm. of his musculature. There's a whole sequence where he poses in front of a mirror and it's stated you know, objectively, despite being into his uh, mid-30s, I think, he could have competed in you know, Mr. Universe competitions. This is a large, I, muscular man. I, I, I seem to remember, I think, one description – I believe compared him to a pro NHL player, linebacker. Well, was was the line was the linebacker? I knew I knew it was I knew it was either that I knew for some reason it's it's October. Of course, I've got hockey on the brain. Um, <laughs> uh, but I knew it was I knew it was something like that where it's somebody just, was somebody was describing him to Reba. I don't. It was. That's literally like just one of those, just one of those lines in the book that I don't know why I remember it, but I, but I remember it, and yeah, it's something like that. Right, which, which kind of makes me wonder because I don't remember if Reba had been blind from birth or if she lost her sight, but if she's never seen a football game, how is describing him as being like a linebacker going to mean anything to her? Uh, I'd have to double check about the character, but Ray finds uh, this is one of the first major things I actually saw him in. So when I saw him years later in other roles and realized that, no, wait, he bulked up considerably for that role. Oh, yeah. Uh, it absolutely needs to be, uh, you know, he needs, he deserves a ton of credit for the physical work he did, getting him, you know, packing on that much muscle because in his normal life, he's not a he's a relatively slight individual, not small, but you know he's he's slender, and he hmm. put on a ton of inches and muscle mass for this role, and that absolutely needs to be commended. And related to Francis Dollarhide, the last thing I want to say before I give Mark kind of last words, and then we're gonna if, see if he has anything else to say, and then we're gonna jump into the uh, Hannibal Rising. <laughs> um, Thank you, Kev. Since since this pertains just to professional wrestling, I, I've shared this on Facebook, I think, but a, to a wider audience here, maybe. I don't know some of our numbers, but uh, I was reading an interview that was done with uh, professional wrestler Kane. Uh, this was when he was promoting See No Evil, which is a pretty darn good slasher movie for those of you who haven't seen it. Sorry. And he was asked specifically, where did he feel Jacob Good, how he felt Jacob Goodnight, his character in that movie, would match up with other famous serial killers, you know, Jason Voorhees, Mike Myers, etc. And he said, mm-hmm. without batting an eye, I think he'd take all of them, except maybe Francis Dollarhide. <laughs> that guy was huge. <laughs> nice. I was just reading that interview, and I just went, you know what, buddy? You may have way overstayed your welcome as far as main event talent goes. You may be, you know, you know. for those of you who don't remember his run a couple of years ago when he was uh, 
in the main event, despite not being an active wrestler on a consistent basis, made mm-hmm. me a fan for life. So, Mark, anything on Red Dragon you want to say finally? Any more defensive Brett Ratner stuff you want to throw out there? I think I've made my point that certain directors are going to are going to be sort of at the at the will of the studio, however crazy minded they may be. From better worse. He does not deserve all the hate. Um, it's still a competently made movie. Um, I just I, I, I wonder how much of this was you know given the type of uh, personality that Edward Norton has and look up stories around American History X for those of you who aren't familiar with his personality. Oh, yeah. oh, I have yeah. to wonder how much of this he might have actually ghost directed. I mean, between him and Ray Fiennes and Anthony Hopkins, you got a bunch of guys who know how to work behind the camera as well as in front of it. Um, I have to say this, as much as Red Dragon, and it's sort of a reiteration of my, uh, my first point, the more I think about it, the more, um, when, I, when I was watching Red Dragon, I think you know, the best parts are uh, the stuff between Anthony Hopkins and Edward Norton. And, um, you know, it's, this is what I want, this is what I was going to say. I don't know if he's ever written, if the original author ever wrote a book about about it. I mean, you guys talk about the about the television series, but we if you just if you're just looking at the film, you look at Silence of the Lambs, you have him locked up and him assisting in a different investigation of a different serial killer. Um, you have Hannibal, which we talked about last week and kind of goes off the rails in a lot of ways, um, but it's also well, you know, well beyond. Um, you know, all the stuff that he's doing, and he, he spends half of it in retirement. Um, and then you go back to this one, and he's once again doing the same thing, helping yet another person solve yet another crime. And I was like, isn't there a much more interesting story in the. <sighs> I guess not the pursuit of Hannibal, because you saw that in the first five minutes of the movie. He got him, they almost killed each other. I guess just the just the things that led to it, and it's funny to me that they never focused the film just on that. They, you know, they it's like it's like I was you guys you guys are gonna laugh and be like, where did you come up with this stuff? But it actually reminded me a lot of the Star Wars prequels, in that George Lucas fucking missed the entire point of why we like Darth Vader, and in trying to show you this other side of him, goes way too far back. Like, like, he goes, you know, it was like the most interesting stuff about Darth Vader happens when he becomes Darth Vader and, you know, and that period leading up to A New Hope, which is why I think Rogue One's going to work out really well. However, instead, instead of kind of showing those things, George Lucas goes, let's fucking show him in a kid. How about that? Let's, let's do that and see how that works out. And then you show him as a white teenager and then as sort of a dysfunctional adult. <laughs> I don't want to see any of this. There's a certain section of this man's life that's really interesting. It's the one thing we haven't seen on film, and there, and that's what I want to see. Oh, and so what they, you're saying is you want a prequel. <laughs> what was that? Wow. Let's make let's make a lecture prequel. <laughs> Wait, you, you want a you want a story about the origin of Hannibal Lecter, Mark? Well, speaking of that, motherfucking ass for it. Stay tuned. <laughs> That is exactly my point. It was like it's like someone heard this years ago and went, "Yeah, he's right. Let's do a lecture prequel. Let's show him 
how we became the monster. Let's start it out as a fetus. Wait, no! Be careful what you wish for. Oh, okay. Well, well, Dr. Jones, hold on to your potatoes because, oh, okay, you... You want to compare compare what you want to basically what amounted to the Christian medal of the Star Wars saga, you know, something that just that just completely loses the point of what people actually like about the original. Okay, you asked for it. <laughs> Buckle up, Buckaroo. Mark, I don't know if that was an intentional segue, but if it was, it was brilliant. <laughs> Hit it, Rob. All right. Um, I'm going to go ahead and do a brief plot synopsis of Hannibal Rising, and then Sean can explain just that from its base inception, this was doomed to a flaming fall to the center of the earth. Uh, Look, there's Icarus who flies too close to the sun, which you can argue some of these movies might do in terms of ambition and adaptation. You know, barring silence, this is more akin to the flying toilet seat that ended the life of poor George Alas. <laughs> because I've never made a dead like me reference on any of the podcasts I've ever done, and I finally got to sneak one in. Oh, we're off to Robert. We're off Robert, to a real good you are, Robert, you are my goddamn hero for that, you son of a bitch. <laughs> Hey, as you keep going through Hannibal, though, you'll get another surprise pertaining to her. Yes. More uh, dead like me. Benjamin Brian will Fuller's remember that you. whole sequence. Brian Fuller's got you covered. He does. Um, all right. This story starts with very young Hannibal Lecter. As a boy, he is a – he's technically a count in Lithuania. In the um, – Early 40s or late 30s? It's would have been late 30s, actually. 1940, I, believe, I believe it was... Was it late 30s? I thought it was 1941, actually. 44 in the movie. Well, the movie yeah, can kiss my ass. I, the book... Spe- <laughs> it, it's specifically, like, right before the Blitzkrieg from the German army through, that, through Lithuania, and I forget exactly when that happened. Though so it probably took place around the same time they annexed Poland, because he, Lithuania is very close to the Russian border, and Hitler had his treaty with the Russians mm-hmm. at that point. So, and early you know, somewhere in that time period, pre the right before World War II really kicks off, but when Hitler's 41. still kind of forty-one, thank you. But when Hitler's still running roughshod over the whole continent, going, "Ha ha, you guys have no balls." Um, his family again they're royalty in Lithuania Lithuania is blitzkrieged his parents are killed he and his uh, young sister Misha and I really do need to talk a lot more about the book in comparison to the novel because I defend the book I do not defend the movie sorry the the novel in comparison Mm -hmm. to the movie not book to novel synonyms yay Uh, we are left with a bit of a cliffhanger as during the winter of, I believe, 43, which was when the Nazis started fail- – the, the German army failed on the Russian front and we're running backwards. It was a bitter winter, and the Russians – when you rile them up, the Russians are not a nice people. And uh, the Russian army was chasing them across you – know, back towards Berlin. The war is almost over. There's a few deserters who hole up in the remains of the castle that they're living in. Winter hits. Bad, you know, starvation, frostbite, bad things. 
I mean, I'll, I'll tell you all right now, because this is not really a spoiler to the movie, the story, or anything else. The fact that they left it ambiguous in the movie in any way, in, in, in ways in the novel, too, is just a, a massive mistake from where I sit. In order to survive this harsh winter, these four or five deserters kill his younger sister, Misha, and they all eat her to stay alive. This whole event traumatizes poor young Hannibal as it would. I mean, you know, not a good thing. Uh, He is picked up by the Russian military as they sweep through. Lithuania and, you know, that whole area fall under communism in the wake of World War II because Stalin. Uh, In the movie, he is placed in an orphanage and stays there until he is a, in his late teens, I think. Uh, He escapes from this unhappy orphanage. He doesn't speak. He escapes to France where he meets up with the wife of his uncle who has died. And thus begin our massive, massive deviations from the source material resulting in major flaws within the film. Uh, Lady Murasaki. And he is slowly coaxed back towards a semblance of normalcy. He can interact in society at least. But he's, he remembers the people who killed his sister, and he is now, again, due to all these events, he's now more than a little unhinged and bent on revenge. He encounters them during the course of his life in education. He murders them, he eats them, a couple in some rather inventive ways. Yeah. Uh, decapitation by horse is now on my list of, you know, things to do to enemies. Oh, stop. (laughs) What? Don't go telling people on a public podcast listened to by tens of people that you're going to try to decapitate someone with a horse. Hey, it works. (laughs) Don't argue with the methodology. It's effective. I I don't like the potential (laughs) murder that you're implying, sir. This is Richard Nixon's enemies list. (laughs) No, no really, is, I worked no, for the Clinton campaign whenever someone with actual evidence is about to come forward. And here oh, I no. thought it was going to just be you with anybody associated with the Team Alpha Male camp. Uriah Faber's <laughs> retiring before the, end, uh, before the end of the year. All is right with the world. <laughs> that was all it took, really? Well, yes. for the moment. Yeah, he's retiring after he beats some scrub in Sacramento. Uh, which is fine. The man's almost 40. He shouldn't be fighting right. anymore anyway. Stop threatening to murder people with horses. Go. Uh, one of, uh, the point being, the kind of key antagonist, and because we must fall within narrative tropes at this point, uh, who had was kind of behind the killing of his sister and whatnot, has actually set up a small criminal empire in France, uh, which is not a, which was not uncommon across Europe at that point. You know, that, that, that country was a mess. Um, we are introduced to one Jimmy McNulty, though he's French this time, so he gives up even easier. <laughs> Damn. Shots at the wire end of this movie. Yeah, I'm on a roll. Um, who is inve- He kind of gets a feeling of that Hannibal might be, you know, a killer, not right in the head type stuff, but he can never quite prove it. There's a theoretical cat-and-mouse game that's really not a cat-and-mouse game, as the movie plays out. 
Uh, Hannibal winds up confronting the final, you know, his final target on his revenge list. This is Bill. He gets to Bill. Uh, He violently murders him and slinks off into the French countryside, escapes to America, finds his final victim, and we theoretically know how the story goes from here. You all suffered as much as I did watching this thing, so before we actually start getting into it, did I miss any salient points? The only thing that I would point out is the backstory with what happened to Misha was actually alluded to and explained in mild detail in Hannibal, prior to Hannibal Rising. That's true. The novel does have the flashback sequences. uh, Yeah, that would be about the only thing I... The only thing I would correct, and even then, it, that was more of Lecter's um, interstitial visits to his uh, his memory palace or memory mansion, as he refers to it. Palace, uh, memory palace. Yeah, which is a really yeah, nice memory mem- technique. Uh, yeah, um, it's it's actually similar to something that I've used a number of times over the years. Um, it's which gets uh, a lot a, of play in the show. Yeah, which is, which is a which is a psychological construct where he's able to compartmentalize the events and emotions and anguish and trauma that would probably, I imagine, otherwise render him the an absolute feral polar opposite of the the cold, calculating, civilized man that we've all come to know and love. Yeah, uh, all right. Um, Guys, you may remember from last week when we were talking about Hannibal, both as a book and as a movie, it was told to Thomas Harris rather expressly, we're going forward with this with you or without you. Mm. And I said, remember that whole exchange because next week, that would be today, when we're talking about Hannibal Rising, it comes up again. Sean... Give us the backstory on this thing. Well, you know, the backstory is really pretty simple in that Harris was approached to write Hannibal Rising basically for about the same reasons as you wrote Hannibal. And as I've thought about this, it's led me to an interesting theory that I think explains what happened and why Red Dragon and Silence of the Lambs are so very good and why Hannibal is so disappointing and Hannibal rising is so, Oh God, it doesn't even burn. I feel nothing. I really don't need the goggles. Um, and that's the fact that you have to look at, at how red dragon and silence of the lambs, the novels came first. He wrote these when he was still, very much in the throes of his love affair with the Lecter character. And the stories are interesting because Red Dragon is really more Will Graham's story than it is Lecter's. And Silence of the Lambs, the sequel, is it's more of a battle of wits and almost kind of the, the dare I say, almost the meet-cute between Clarice Starling and Hannibal Lecter. Um, whereas Hannibal is virtually entirely just 
cannibal story continuing on, continuing on from there. Uh, that's that feels like the primary backbone of it. And Hannibal Rising, it's like so many after the fact prequels, it just feels tacked on. When Thomas wrote Red Dragon and Silence of the Lambs, if you go back and read the books, it's obvious that he's still infatuated and fascinated with the character and feels like there's a lot to say. But what's very evident with Hannibal is that Harris knew deep down after he wrote Silence of the Lambs, okay, I feel like we've said all there is to say with the old boy. Then along comes this idea of, well, like you, had, like you said, Robert, we're going to do this with or without you. And that was almost like putting a gun to his head. And he thought, okay, if I have to make this sacrifice, I would rather do this myself and have even a slim chance of salvaging something that does my creation justice rather than putting it in the hands of somebody else and even beginning to ponder how they might mangle it. Because obviously Hollywood being Hollywood, we've seen this a shit ton of times already, uh, arguably the most, the most infamous and polarizing of the bunch being the Godfather part three. Um, you know, here's a story that has nothing to do with anything Mario Puzo originally wrote or a story he ever intended to be told. And, well, look what happened. Now, with Hannibal and Hannibal Rising, it's a matter of the motivation obviously not being as strong and the man's heart just not being in it. He's doing it to uh, just to sort of keep the character. How do I want to put this? Um, he's willing to hurt the character a little bit to keep somebody else from maiming him. That, that's, that's about the best way to describe it, because clearly it's something that he was doing for the money and to kind of sort of protect his legacy or at least to take control over how it was going to die. You know, if it's if it's going to perish, it's at least going to perish on his terms and by his hand. And he ends up writing a sequel just for the sake of writing a cash-in sequel as opposed to something where he could look at this character and go... No, no, no. This is a story that I feel is untold that everybody needs to hear, that we need for the character to really to really feel complete. And honestly, uh, this is just my opinion. I didn't even feel that way after I read Hannibal. You know, after I read that, uh, we we got the the flashbacks that intermittently explained everything that went down with Misha and the and the stowaway Nazi deserters and everything, and that was kind of enough for me. I didn't really need to hear um, a full-on chronicling of how he tracked everybody down ap- down after the fact, and they became his first big kills. 
could that have maybe with with an earnest fuck being given been a story worth telling? Possibly, maybe, if his heart had been in it and that had been why he was making it. But it wasn't. And, you know, Benjamin, I, I think you could agree with me on this as someone who's digested enough fiction and is enough of a student of creativity that no matter how much they might try to hide it, almost any artist, if they're clearly doing something just to get paid or just to get by or just because of somebody else's motivations or demands, no matter how much they may try to disguise it, it shows through. It usually does, yeah. Yeah, the audience picks up on it. It doesn't matter if it's if it's a comic, if it's a wrestling, if it's a wrestling match, if it's a movie, if it's a book, if it's a TV show, if it's a video, if it's a video game. If you just don't care, it's going to be obvious to everybody, no matter what you might say. Um, Some sometimes people sometimes people are talented enough to create something of quality despite that, but yeah, yeah. in most cases. Um, in most yeah, cases, okay. it's fairly obvious. Yeah, okay. Again, the, the wrestling example. My, my personal favorite wrestling example, as a matter of fact. Um, those who were watching Raw back in the early 2000s, um, in, the, in the period between, I believe it was uh, WrestleMania, I think it was after, yeah, it was between WrestleMania 18 and 19, um, uh, there was this brief little, like, couple weeks long program that they did with Jeff Hardy and the then WWE Undisputed Champion Undertaker. Uh, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but it was during a period when they actually were starting to get behind Jeff as they were kind of starting to ease toward the breakup of the Hardy Boys tag team. And Jeff was looking like the guy they were going to strap a rocket to and try to launch him into, like, main event status uh, to kind of keep pace, theoretically, with the Stone Cold Steve Austins and Rocks and Undertakers and Kurt Angles. And they do this this kind of underdog program where Taker is this big monster heel and Jeff is this plucky, insane little, insane little underdog who challenges, who basically goads the Undertaker, humiliates him right into giving him um, an undisputed championship match, and ends up being a ladder match in the main event of Raw. And Jeff goes out there and gives what at the time was absolutely the performance of a lifetime despite the fact that his blood was coursing with every fucking drug there is known to man, and several that testers would probably look at it and go, what the hell is this? We don't even have a name for this. It's straight name um, is Brother Nero. <laughs> nailed it. Um, <laughs> um, and yet... He goes out there, and through a combination of The Undertaker being the goddamn Undertaker, and Jeff 
being Jeff, they managed to put on what was an utter, absolute, almost forgotten today classic. Um, and one of my favorite matches of all time. Years later, after he had been dismissed from the company for refusing to go to rehab, gone to TNA for a little while, disappeared off the face of the earth for a little bit, and then come back to WWE, he gave an interview with WWE Magazine, and one part of it blew my mind. They asked him about that match, and he said, yeah, honestly, I didn't really give a shit. I, I didn't care. I, I just really didn't. I just really didn't care. And I thought about that. I thought about every spot. I thought about every chair shot he laid in to, to the Undertaker that I swear to God you could hear three area codes away. They were so fucking stiff. And the kind of story they, they told that was so compelling, it ended up turning Taker face again by the end of the match. And I just thought, this was what you did when your heart wasn't in it and when you were probably so intoxicated that you would have sworn on a stack of Bibles that you were actually that you were actually a reanimated pumpkin. You were so fucking out of your gorgeous this is where we got the famous spot for those of you who have seen it on Botchmania probably. We're in the middle of a six man tag. Um uh, uh, Rico Constantino is up on the top rope and and is waiting for Sir Stone to lock to get into position to catch Come on, Jeff. dive off. Jeff, yeah. where are you? Yeah. Come on, Jeff. Yeah. Hear me, Jeff. Yeah, you just, yeah, you can just hear him plainly yelling on prime time on prime time cable tel- cable television. Something like, God damn it, Jeff. Um, it's seconded because, only to Eddie Guerrero's infamous meltdown at the ringside referee about where was Vicky. Oh, oh, oh yeah, oh yeah, when Vicky <laughs> Mr. Spot at SummerSlam. This was this was how gone Jeff Hardy was by by this time, and yet on that night, despite not giving a flying fuck and being in there with a veteran who, if he had injured him, would have probably split him into numerous pieces about the size of one of Hornswoggle's shoes. <laughs> um, he somehow pulled off a match that I could watch again and again to this day. And even people, even though it was arguably one of the darker periods in the company as far as quality goes, other people I've talked to still looking back go, oh, God, I remember that match. I legitimately thought he was going to win the championship. Okay, that's an example of somebody not giving a shit or legitimately hating what they had made, and you would never know it if you had never heard it, never heard it from them. I would also throw out there Anthony Burgess and a Clockwork and a Clockwork Orange. Burgess hated that book. Um, pretty much his, pretty much his entire life. Um, uh, oh, Rivers Cuomo. If you were to ask him about Pinkerton, not his favorite, not his favorite album, uh, one that he's he almost sounds downright indifferent toward. It's it's a and, far more common thread with creative people than you might even think about how some of their best work and some of their most revered work is something that mm-hmm. they really either didn't care for or didn't put in as much effort as you think they would have. 
It happens a lot. It's, it's, it, there's a, there's usually at least one story about that per like, you know, you know, perceived masterpiece. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Bro, uh, talked about how he, um, he quit the dead Kennedys to go do other stuff because quote, he didn't want to be singing holiday in Cambodia for his lunch. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, and, and so it goes with these movies is, you know, you can watch Silence of the Lambs and Red Dragon knowing that they're adapted closely and deftly and expertly by Ted Talley from the source material to be as close to Thomas Harris's vision as possible. And you can see kind of how much depth Harris was willing to put into Lecter and how much and how obsessed he was with making him compelling and evil, and yet for there to have this quality about him that you were magnetized to, that you almost, that you actually, to your surprise, maybe even your horror, found yourself respecting by the end of it. But then you go and you look at Hannibal and Hannibal Rising in terms of story in terms of tone, in terms of what we see of, Han- of Hannibal Lecter. Uh, and you realize that they're that empty because there was just nothing there that was organic, seemingly, for Harris to tap into to create that kind of mystique that we got with the first two novels that later translated into the first into the first two movies um, and that Ted Talley was able to kind of commune with in his adapted screenplay. And then you get these two and, you know, it, it's phoned in. It, it, and well, obviously Anthony Hopkins didn't phone in Hannibal, Hannibal Lecter. Uh, he, God love that. God love that man. He did. He did absolutely. He could all he could. Um, to turn a very a fairly mediocre, attacked on story in Hannibal into something relatively watchable, we can't begin to say that about Hannibal Rising. That's how empty and emotionless, in all the wrong ways, this feels. I've never seen a movie get so much wrong. I mean, you know, Robert and I did, did an entire series of summer movies. And I defended what was ostensibly a lot of garbage. Yeah, but you I always did. was able to. Pick, <laughs> but I was always able to pick something out about them, not, and not just be an apologist for it, but pick something about them that was either competent, or you know, entertaining, or even good on an objective level. There's always there's 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 very very few movies that I've seen that are just objectively bad on every level, and. So I think that's why I reacted so badly to this movie. I mean, it's a drab movie. This, this thing lacks color. And I understand some of the settings that this is supposed to be, you know, being, we don't need, you know, rainbow bright going on here. But for Jesus Christ, you, this is supposed to be a movie meant to entertain people, not knock them out, you know, into unconsciousness. This has got to be the most boring movie to look at, number one. Number two... And this was this was the Darth Vader thing that I was talking about before. 
you want to talk about a story that misses the entire point of what made that character interesting in the first place. You know, here's the thing, and Sean was talking about it before. You can tell a story about, you know, him killing his tormentors and how that got him going, but that's only good for about 20 minutes. If there's no, if, if there's nothing more to it or there's no, there aren't more obstacles in his way. There's no internal struggle going on with him. He's just, he just sort of wakes up one morning and after this traumatizing childhood of being in a war and watching his sister get eaten and all of that, which is all, you know, I, I've taken that away from the character. Uh, he's just a monster out for revenge. Ho-hum, that is a story told a billion times and a billion times better in other movies. So I, I watched this and I'm like, isn't the more interesting thing about this guy the kinds of things he was able to get away with in America? But not only just the killing part of it, because honestly, the fact that he eats people has got to be the most least interesting thing about Hannibal Lecter, in my opinion. What was really cool about him in Silence of the Lens was how he's able to manipulate people. And it does it again in Red Dragon. He's able to manipulate. He's able to give you his confidence and his trust. And what makes him a monster, besides the eating people, is that he can turn on you in a, with the snap of a finger. That's what makes him truly terrifying, is that he's this sort of invisible menace almost, that you know, you're with him, you're with him, you're with him, and suddenly there's a knife in your back. That's scary. That's horrifying. And that was completely absent in what amounted to a fucking slasher film. But the most drab, stupid, incompetently directed slasher film I've ever seen. It was literally as if they, they took, the, I guess, the source material, they looked at it, they put together a screenplay and went, huh, what do people really want to see Hannibal Lecter do? Uh, talk? No. <laughs> no talking in this movie. Let's just do a lot of staring at the camera menacingly. Let's just have him meet people over and over and over again. Kill him and eat them. Kill him and eat them. I mean, didn't they do like a comedy musical about that sort of thing and that was quite enough? Uh, Cannibal the Musical. Really, that's all you needed to be said, needed to be said about the subject. <laughs> the sky is blue and all the leaves are green. My heart's as full as a big potato. I think I know exactly what I mean. When I say it's a spidoinkle day. I'm already more that entertained. Is- <laughs> <laughs> what was that? But I'm more entertained. I'm more entertained already. By me butchering a Trey Parker musical? Yes. <laughs> more entertained. And I stick by that. <laughs> On every conceivable <laughs> level. <laughs> which is, I, I threw a lot which out which there. Is, in a way in there. Um, yeah. I, I don't have a whole lot to say about this movie. I... I I messaged uh, Sean yesterday, and I told him that for the most part, this movie kind of washed over me like bathwater. Um, I read the book a, a while ago. I didn't, I didn't love it, but it was a damn sight better than this movie. The book um, at least makes sense. <laughs> the book at least gives the book is at least is capable of giving you more insight into Lecter's, you know, internal monologue, you know, such as it is. Uh, 
you know, more than this movie did. Um, like like Bart was saying, it was mostly just uh, uh, just like just staring into the camera. Um, and was uh, I hope I don't pronounce this wrong, but uh, Gaspard Ulil is the kid that played him. He was about twenty three when he made the, when he did the movie. There's a um, weird. Yeah, the D is silent. He's French, and it's um, Uliel, I believe. But yeah, the, that right, poor him. guy. Yeah, that guy. That poor guy. Um, you know him, <laughs> like doing just the broadest strokes of a really lame-ass Anthony Hopkins impression. Like this is Anthony Hopkins burlesque. This is like you know, like, like Hannibal Lecter. What I used to do in my bathroom mirror. This is Hannibal Lecter no. Kabuki Theater, is what it is. Oh, give, um, give, give, give Goofy Ukulele credit. He was arguably the best part of the movie. Uh, that's very arguable. I have. Uh, isn't it Tim Roth who plays that? Uh, uh the big bad guy. No, nah, that's uh, uh, just another guy that I'm. I'm worried I'm gonna read. Uh, he he played. Uh, uh, Dr. Connors in Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, Reese. Oh, Reese yeah, Iton. yeah. Reese 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 uh, I'll go with him. I'll go with him. He's yeah, the best part of the movie. Yeah, I'd, I'd lean that way, too, actually. I, and the I, I, actor playing the movie, it, look, he wasn't given a lot to work with. He was no, told, not at all. Not at all. He, he was told, from, the, from the time they, they bring him in as, you know, as Hannibal the Teenager to the very end of the movie, basically told your whole motivation is revenge and you want to eat people because they ate your sister and he did the okay. best fucking job he could with that i mean okay, okay. I, so, go ahead. so maybe I, maybe i maybe i do have a little bit more to say about this than i thought i did um i don't know I, i'll try to keep it keep it simple but um you know it, it's it's a hell of a thing when you you know when you uh task this kid in his early 20s with uh, not only, you know, not only giving him the role of a character that uh, Anthony Hopkins has already made immortal like three times over, uh, but then ask him to play it in a very particular sort of way, uh, you know, towards the beginning of his life. And you're showing, you know, your job is show everybody how how he becomes this character, how the character you're playing becomes this character that this person has played in three movies. Um, that's a tall order for anybody. Um, you know, especially in my opinion, because Anthony Hopkins is one of my favorite actors ever. He, he can do no wrong in my eyes, really. So, you know, he got a raw deal from the beginning. Um, and this is, you know, like a lot of prequels, and I'm not one of those people that say that prequels are universally terrible. I think, you know, you, like anything else, you, you get out of it what you put into it. Um, and, you know, you can make a decent prequel if you put some kind of, you know, put some kind of care and some kind of creativity into it. But this was the textbook example of an answer to a question no one asked. Uh, <laughs> It, it, it is the Lisa Simpson of, <laughs> of the Hannibal Lecter series. I'm, I'm warming up for the Simpsons podcast, Robert, in case you can't tell. I've been making a few references. Um, but, yeah, some things, uh, there are some characters where you don't need to know the origin of them. 
No. Hannibal Lecter was was probably the best example of this, and Thomas Harris probably knew this and did and wrote the story anyway, and I guess did what he could. Um, All right, I, I don't rebut that. Hang on, let me rebut that because I think in the, I think a confidently told story about how a guy comes to believe that eating people gives him power or gives him something that he's missing psychologically can be interesting and is interesting. It's just not the movie that we saw. It hasn't been produced yet. Maybe it's in the television series you guys are talking about. I don't know. But if you tell me confidently an interesting story about how a man becomes a cannibal monster and it's about the psychology it's about the psychopathology of of that character. That's interesting. Well, here's it here's the so thing about that, and we'll, we'll once again we'll once again touch on you know the whole uh, the show did it better concept. There are glimpses you you get hints of events that that occurred in Hannibal Rising in the show, and this is not a spoiler. This is not spoiling anything. You get glimpses and you get hints dropped of events that occurred in Hannibal Rising. They're directly referenced in uh, in in the show, throughout the show. But the difference is is that the people making the show know the value of, you know, keeping a certain degree of Hannibal's backstory up to your imagination and up to and and up to what your what your imagination will fill in as far as the blanks of that. Um, and this story from the book to the movie to everything goes out of its way to try to, you know, try to explicitly fill in all those little blanks. And it doesn't do a very good job of it uh, because a lot of what, a lot of what made the character scary is just what you don't know about him and what you don't know about why he does, why he is the way he is. And especially in Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal Lecter is portrayed as this sort of unknowable, uh, entity, unknowable, almost force of nature, um, and you start explaining things about that, and all of a sudden, it's it become it, it diminishes the character a little bit. Not maybe not entirely, but it diminishes him a little bit uh, in, in terms of what made him effectively scary. Um, th- there's one thing, like one thing that I noticed, like as I was going through this movie, and and especially like you guys, hopefully you guys will get a kick out of this because. It's what it you know. It reminded me of you know a podcast we did a while back, and I said, and I thought to myself, the only thing this movie is missing, the only thing Hannibal Rising is missing, is crow makeup and a lame actor. <laughs> this is a crow movie. This is a this this is a bad crow sequel. <laughs> and think back about all about all of the major story beats in this movie and you tell me that if you didn't slap some some black and white makeup on this guy it this couldn't be you know this couldn't pass for a for a lame ass crow movie I'm, we just I, I'm, cu- I'm 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 curious <laughs> has uh has has go for urethra been in anything else Probably not, not, not anything well known like in the states since he did this movie. Oh, poor <laughs> You made a terrible movie. Get out of our country. Um, all right, go ahead. We jump in here um, and uh, and either take us home, take us somewhere, take us to the next discussion point. Take us uh, to the right. river. 
something like that. Uh, the, the real thing I wanted to talk about with this movie is the differences between the novel and the screenplay. These two things were written concurrently by Thomas Harris, and they were released concurrently. Um, the main advantage that the novel has, first of all, and again, novels being just a different format than film, certain stories have different advantages in one medium over the other. The novel gives you a lot more of Lecter's thoughts, Lecter's thought process, which is absolutely critical to a story about how he became who he is. The other thing the novel does so much better than the movie is cover time. The novel spans a considerable amount of time. Lecter is taken to France and adopted when he is a much younger man. He is pre-teens, I believe, if memory serves. His uncle is actually a relevant character. His uncle dies in a... uh, I'm trying to remember. Someone insults his wife because racist French people don't like the Orientals, apparently. He, attempt, he gets really pissed off about that. They engage in a fight. He dies during that particular encounter. Lecter subsequently kills that man. Uh, but there's a lot more that goes into his education. You, they talk a lot about you know, some of his thought processes, him going into medicine because he is a, he's a medical doctor as well as a psychiatrist trained surgeon and the amount of time that's covered is a a substantial portion of his development that plays in in the novel also and this is a really important thing that uh, just uh, i understand that why they went a different way with it but but it detracts from the overall novel at the end of the novel after he has killed what's his face on the yacht he's actually arrested by mcnulty the problem is it gets out in the press and it's never, I believe it's implied to be uh, his aunt who leaves to return to Japan after this, after she realizes, you know, this is a horrible monster that she's a much more important character in the novel as well. It's leaked to the press that no, he was the victim of Nazi war crimes and he was killing Nazi sympathizers and deserters and people who had fought for the German army and there is such a, gr- uh, a groundswell of populist support for this poor young man who's got glowing recommendations from all of his professors and academics and peers about being a brilliant mind that he is released uh, despite all the evidence that McNulty has, again, has amassed against him, which is few and far between, but probably enough to at least stick him in a, a facility for the rest of his life. Uh, bowing to political pressure, he's released and basically just kicked out of the country, but goes to Johns Hopkins in Baltimore and you know, resumes it and picks up from there. And I, it's an important part of the story, I feel, because he gets away with it, not in the sense that he slinks off into the middle of the night, but in the most ostentatious manner possible. It's okay. just, yeah, so I wh- did it. <laughs> what you just said there would have, A, made a much better ending. B, would have definitely spoken to somebody developing a, a, a psychopathology that says, you know, I'm invincible, I'm a god. If you can walk around and kill five, six people and get away with it and then have the country not think you're a monster but think you're a celebrated hero, whoo, 
whatever else was going on with you at the time is just going to get made worse. And that mm-hmm. to me is much more interesting than let me go kill a guy in the woods and drive off in the car at roll credits. Yeah, he also, and again, a lot of this plays to the internals of Lecter. The struggle that he has at points in the novel is much more interesting about, I mean, he still wants revenge, but the depth of his psychosis, which is not really psychosis, but the depth of his issues are are made more clear throughout the course of that story and just exacerbate as he grows and learns and keeps getting away with it. And yeah, yeah, again, I defend the novel to varying degrees uh, because I don't, I don't hate it. The movie needs to be used as an interrogation technique. I mean, it's just awful. <laughs> uh, but no, that's really all I have. I mean, I agree with you guys that poor Gaspar Uliel was put in an absolutely untenable position just to begin with. And then the fact that you have a less than competent director working from less than good material and the guy's basically doing a, an Anthony Hopkins impression badly. Uh, honestly, his performance, because Uliel is not a bad actor, all things considered. Mm-hmm. No. Uh, when you, when you per- give me a second, I got to up. He's doing just fine. No, he's still working and he's a, he's a competent actor. Yeah. But the fact that his, I mean, his performance is one of the reasons I was so hesitant to get into Hannibal as a television series. Also, I was not as familiar with Mads Mikkelsen at the time as I am now. And the fact that Hannibal Lecter will in two, uh, you know, next week be invading the, the MCU and by the end of the year invaded, have invaded the Star Wars universe makes me all kinds of happy. Yes. Uh, but yeah, I, Mark, just based on what you've, some of the complaints you've had, some of the things you've mentioned, I really, really cannot strongly enough recommend the television series to you. I think you'll enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me make one. Let me say one very quick, very final thing, and that's really all I have to say about this. For me, what makes this one of the worst movies I've ever seen is strictly focused on the story. The story is bad <laughs> because <laughs> it's it's almost like like some student film trying to create a slasher movie with no passion for movie making. It was like my dad put my dad forced me to take this class. I wanted to be an accountant. And we, like so we had to like so we had to put together this film, you know, to, to pass this class and it was like, oh I'll just make a fucking horror film and we'll have you know we'll have a kid whose sister gets eaten and so he goes around eating the guys that did it to him. A very quick perusal of director Peter Weber's IMDb page shows a lot of TV movies. Take take that <laughs> however you want. <laughs> like I said, it's just such a bad story. It's it's a badly told story, and I feel like everything else sort of surrounding the movie, whether it's the performances, the set pieces, or whatever, while not great and in some cases forgivable, like the performances, I can't really fault the actors, they tried. Um, I, it's just, none of this was believable. It's like, I, yeah, that, that was the one piece I wanted to add to this. If you're supposed to come away with this going, oh, that's how he got to be uh, Anthony Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs. I get it now. They failed on every, compl- on every level. Uh, by the end of this movie, I did not buy that he was out of a lecture. 
nope. didn't believe it. I, you know, he was Hannibal in name only. And to me, that's what makes the story even worse. Is that you, is that you took this, you took the mythology, you basically strip mined it of everything that made it what it was, and all that's left is these garbage pieces of nothing. So now that feeling right there, Mark. That's how I feel about every Transformers movie. So now, now you oh, feel my pain. <laughs> Get out of here. They use the Transformers to transform sound. That counts. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Anybody else uh, have some right. final word on this? Um, ahead, yeah, sure. I'll go ahead and get my final thoughts in here. There's a, the, the interesting thing about this franchise is that it's got, and a, for those of you who enjoy Hannibal as a film, uh, we can you know, reasonable people can disagree about degrees on this. There's a really interesting, it starts low with Manhunter, which we, don't, we haven't talked about here as a film for very good reason. It's eminently forgettable. With the lone exception that it spawned perhaps my least favorite genre in television. Because I defy you to watch this movie and not think this is a backdoor pilot for CSI. <laughs> given, given the time, given the time frame, and given that you know it's Michael Mann that made the movie, it actually kind of plays like a creepier episode of Miami Vice. <laughs> yeah, it's it's eminently forgettable, and it's not very good, and it's a Michael Mann it, movie to a fault. Manhunt is the it's the Arno Stark of the Hannibal Lecter series. Yeah. Um, and so if you skip that, but there's this really interesting kind of wave, you know, wave pattern in that you start pretty weak with Manhunter. Then you hit one of the highest notes possible with Silence of the Lambs. You know, Hannibal as a film drops considerably. Red Dragon, and again, reasonable people can disagree about Red Dragon or Hannibal. I find Red Dragon more enjoyable than Hannibal as a film. By far. However, again, your, your mileage may vary. So you get this up, down, and then, and then Hannibal Rising. And Hannibal Rising, as a property, is just a case study of studio interference, of studio ideas, of studio executives gifted their position by name only, thinking that they know how to make mm-hmm. movies. It's a miserable, utter failure on every conceivable level and if i were to watch this movie again and i've only seen it the two times now i'm pretty sure i could find shots with a boom mic in it that's how incompetent this thing is (laughs) robert and we thought the fast and the furious and hellraiser had weird arcs of quality they do but they don't hit quite the same values that this (laughs) franchise does with the possible okay Gun to my head, and no, I've now realized what my own personal hell is. It's having a loop of the second Transformers movie, Hellraiser Revelations, and Hannibal Rising that I have to watch for all eternity. Oh, God damn. You're actually going to invoke. <laughs> actually, no. You know what? Now that I, re- I was going to express shock that you actually put, put it on the same plane as Hellraiser Revelations, but. When I think of the fact that even despite my now relatively calmer, more reformed mental state, 
that my eye still twitches at the mention of Hellraiser Revelations. No. When I think of how fond you two especially are of Hannibal Lecter, I can't blame you whatsoever, and I will co-sign that a hundred times over. You mentioned that. I can't uh, wait to review the next, talk review about, the next movie. Talk about a gun-to-your-head revelation that'll make you double, you know, think twice about the bullet. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Something kidding. like that, you know. Uh, but yeah, it's an interesting franchise. It's one certainly worth watching, and feel free to skip Hannibal Rising. I mentioned this off-air, and I'll mention it again here. If I had known fully, fully comprehending that Mark was asking about Hannibal Rising in terms of this as, a, as an intellectual property for Long Road to Ruin, I would have said, no Hannibal Rising. I'll save you all of that pain. <laughs> Instead... The first episode will deal with the trilogy, and the second one can just be about the television series, and we'll all be better off. I would have been down for that. But uh, yeah, that, that's my final thoughts there. Thanks for letting me be on. Uh, this is the this series has been a lot of fun for me, and you know, hanging out with you guys and talking about it. So thank you tremendously for that. Always a pleasure. Yep, I appreciate you doing the lion's share of work here. Ben, I appreciate you coming on. I've really come to enjoy uh, your insights when you've been on uh, these shows. You know, you were on our show about The Crow. Um, you were you participated in a lot of Alan Mormon. Um, and so, like I said, I, uh, I hope you'll, you'll come on to these shows a little bit more often. And I especially enjoy your Angry Ben character when we can provoke that out of you. <laughs> that becomes the highlight of my show, the Wait. highlight of the show, quite frankly. What what character? <laughs> anyway, thank you thank you for being a part of this. Um, I have a no, I, have, I have a question for you. I don't mean to put you out or anything, but I'm actually asking because I'm going to start putting the shows up uh, shortly. Are we getting art for Harry Potter? Yeah, I think that's that's pretty uh, that's pretty. De- it's not. I haven't touched it yet, but it uh, it's pretty safe to say I'll do that. What's the plan? Are you doing one title card for the entire eight series, or are you doing a title card per show, or what's your plan? Um, you guys are doing a lot of shows for this series, so I think I may need to stick with one or two totally if I have fine. enough time. Okay, just kind of keep me posted so that I know what I'm putting where. Sure. Okay, um, which reminds me, next week, uh, Long Road Tour is taking, uh, it's not taking one of our uh, Valley Hood hiatuses. <laughs> we are coming back next week. Uh, at uh, 9.30, we'll be taking a look at the first two Harry Potter movies. We'll be um, uh, coming back on the second, on the 10th, rather, of November uh, after we uh, elect President Trump to uh, uh, presidency. <clears throat> uh, <laughs> Hi, fellas. Uh, so, yeah, November 10th, uh, two short days after Election Day, we'll be looking at the uh, next two Harry Potter movies. We're going to then change the day uh, to Tuesday, November 15th. We'll be looking, we'll be part three of the Harry Potter series. Then we're going to skip a week because <laughs> it's Thanksgiving and I've got other stuff to do. And finally, we will be wrapping up back on Thursdays again, December 1st, with uh, the last of the Harry Potter series, uh, that was the, the last movie actually, that was broken into two parts. So that's Long Road to Ruin for the next month, the month of November. Harry Potter month, as it were, here on the Rattling Broadcasting mm-hmm. Network. Ben, plug your stuff. Uh, 
Not much, not many plugs for me. I'm still semi-recovering from New York Comic Con. So for now, uh, as always, as ever, you can find me. I write, draw, self-publish a uh, comic called Soul Exodus. You can find me on my website, soulexo.com, on Facebook, facebook.com slash soulexo, Twitter, at soulexocomic, uh, doing art for the aforementioned Long Road to Ruin. Uh, hopefully I'll be able to get something of quality done for Harry Potter by next week, which I was largely unaware was going to be next week. Yeah, my big mouth. Um, we'll see what I can do in uh, in a week. I've done more and shorter in a shorter amount of time. Um, tomorrow and oh, don't make me Weasley and hang on. Just make me Weasley and Sean Harry Potter and have a fucking shoot in Baltimore. It's done. You'll you'll be who I make you. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be a bad. Don't be a Mark, how many times in all these years has Ben taken you down a peg by way of the title cards? Every single one of them, just about. You got to be I'm ash. Not, don't give me that shit. If you'll remember, last year for my birthday, he drew me in a goddamn Anaheim Ducks jersey. Uh, you guys don't get to complain. I was stuck in the reverse bear trap. That's true. Good point. Good point. I really do torture the hell out of the three of you, don't I? You've, been pretty I good. you've actually you've actually been pretty good to me so far, Ben. I, have I may, to say. Well, I'm gonna have to do something about that. Well, hang, hang uh, on. Let, let me say this: between the Jaws card, which I was still one of my favorites, and me as Bane holding my son as Baby Bane, Ben, you do no wrong in my eyes. I'm just saying. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's true. That's one of my favorite ones, by the way, is the Dark Knight card. That's still, that's still my favorite one. I love still that awesome. because I got to be the Joker. That's hanging above my – that's been hanging above my computer since my wife got it for me for Christmas. And occasionally, my daughter will look up at it and go, so you're the guy in the mask, Daddy? And I'm like, yes, that's me, and that's Jonas, and that's you in the bathroom. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that's good. Uh, yeah. That makes it all worthwhile. Um, uh, what well, you know, my I guess my last plug of this particular moment. I mean, uh, hopefully I'll have plenty more to plug in, you know, in the coming months and uh, in the new year, I guess. Um, but in the meantime, uh, I get to uh, do something very fun tomorrow, actually, uh, with. Uh, Robert Winfrey and uh, Jesse Starcher, and that is apparently we're doing we're we're bringing back everyone loves a bad guy, and Robert will get into this into this a little bit more himself. This is probably a good segue for him. We're gonna talk about Simpsons Treehouse of Horror uh, villains, which is something that I suggested to him last year immediately after Halloween. So I had to wait a whole year to see if this was actually gonna happen and if I could participate because I've been dying to do a Simpsons podcast for a very long time. Uh, and I finally get to do one. So you're going, everybody's going to get to see the depths of my Simpsons geekdom uh, finally uh, tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Everyone Loves a Bad Guy will be making a return. I'm not sure if it's going to be on a permanent basis. If I do bring it back on a permanent basis, it will not be weekly. I can guarantee that for going forward. But at a minimum, tomorrow, 
myself, Benjamin, and Jesse Starcher are going to talk about uh, the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror Villains. Everyone from the from the evil Lord Monty Mort to the fifty foot eyesores, Homer Simpson's Jack Nicholson impression. Uh, Burns as Dracula because Burns has been the villain quite a few times. <laughs> Uh, we're going to talk about it all. I get to talk about my second favorite reading of The Raven ever, which is equal parts James Earl Jones, Dan Castellaneta, and Yudlid Smith. Uh, so it should be a lot of fun. Tune in for that. Uh, I look forward to that discussion. And my, I'm not sure how my Simpsons geekdom stacks up with Benjamin's, but uh, we're going to find out. It ought to be interesting. It ought to be interesting. Let me quick add on to that plug. Uh, Speaking of returns, Damn You Hollywood is about to gear up for our end of the year series. We're getting into the end of the year holiday uh, movies here, and we're going to kick it off with Inferno. Um, uh, I should have finished reading That'll be interesting. (laughs) On November 18th, we'll be reviewing Doctor Strange. Um, We're taking the week of Thanksgiving off. We'll be back on November 22nd with Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Uh, we'll be reviewing Moana on November 29th. Yay, Disney Princess Films. Uh, we're taking the we're, I'm I'm cheering, a brief. We're teaming up with Lynn manuel Miranda. I don't know what you're sharing. I don't know what you're sharing. Uh, that my daughter's going to love this movie because it's another princess movie, and I, and I cheer her happiness. Good for you. That? You're a good <laughs> husband and father. <laughs> I'm a good father. I don't know the husband part. Um, you're still married, aren't you? Still married, aren't you? Yes, we're uh, we're taking the first uh, the uh, first-ish week of no of December off, but then we are we're taking two weeks off. There we go. We're taking two weeks off mm-hmm. so that Robert can uh, get into therapy, pick up a vice or two, and prepare himself for yet another Star Wars review. We'll be reviewing Rogue One. <laughs> I'm a, I am more cautiously optimistic about Rogue One than I was about, you know, A New Hope version 2.0. Aww. Aww. And, still finally, on and finally, hey, it follows the same structure. I'm going to keep calling it that. It doesn't make it a bad move. Okay. Um, well, Long Road to Ruin will be finishing up uh, the year on December 13th with the Carnetto trilogy. Sean Woo-hoo. doesn't finish up just yet. He will be joining us on Damn You Hollywood on December 27th to review Assassin's Creed. I and have then, uh, a bad feeling about this. Oh, so do I. Um, and I haven't even played the game. Uh, but le- And lastly, Damn You Hollywood has its final show for 2016. Thank God. Um, Damn You Hollywood. I'm not looking forward, forward to that one because it means I have to go into 2017. Oh, boy. I'm on back the deck again to you, pal. Um, December 29th, right before uh, I, I worked the entire New Year's Eve weekend uh, at, the, at the jail, we will be doing Damn You Hollywood, the year in review. The good, the bad, and the Ghostbusters. Sean! Such a bad movie. That movie is the moment after a long day at work when you're getting ready to bite into a nice steak ribeye and suddenly every pipe in your house ruptures, showering you with uniform water and fecal matter. It's oddly specific. <laughs> okay. I've led an interesting life. now. <laughs> 
<laughs> thank you everybody thank for you listening everybody. live and download and downloading. You all obviously are the reasons why we do all of this every single week here in the Rod Lichen Broadcast Network, whether it's Long Road to Ruin, Dan Metal Hammer of Doom, Source Material, uh, from the Cheap Seats when that's been on, uh, uh, Productions. Uh, you are the reason that we are us. Uh, as for where else you can catch me, if you somehow haven't had your fill of me this week, uh, I am now a writer over on FPG News. I write the Comer Codex. And if you should happen to miss out on WWE Hell of a Cell Sunday night, don't worry. Just check, just check FPGnews.com Monday morning. That echo is still stuttering with me. And check and out my check out detailed, my detailed in-depth, in-depth recap. That's so weird. That's so weird. <laughs> <laughs> written, written, written move by move, match by match, match by match. Again, that's the Homer Codex at fpgnews.com. I am also the new rating online marketing director who is driving the train over at the Honeysuckle Rose Creations Facebook page. Uh, stop by there for for lots of great lots deals of great on geeky, on kitschy geeky jewelry, jewelry. Uh, the odd meme, occasional updates on other nerdy uh, news stories. Uh, I could swear that I'm missing something. I've been so damn busy lately. I've gone from basically being creatively dormant and kind of coasting for a few months to just running on all cylinders suddenly in about half a heartbeat. Uh, so I'm sure I'm probably going to forget something, but I'm still in. I'm Sean. You're not. You were all wonderful. Thank you, Robert and Ben. You are far and away my favorite guest host to do this show with. And in the meantime, never forget that $20 will buy mini peanuts and never dull your colors for someone else's canvas. Explain how. All right, we'll see you next week. Be well. Money can be exchanged for goods and services. For goods and services. <laughs> One more time. Be well, be safe, and behave. <laughs>